I just came back from getting my hair cut. I was surprised to hear this on my old Italian barber's radio. How quickly a song can take you back. Summer 1984, in the basement with the record player, the picture sleeve was beige. The three young musicians looked sullen, but they were English. It got me thinking how powerful a trigger to memory sound is, and especially music. Summer 1975, the second floor of our Mississauga townhouse, late at night, everyone's asleep, but in my sister's room, Bowie plays on the clock radio, set to 10.50. The bathroom light is blinding as I stand over the toilet, singing that creepy, inhuman, descending scale. Sometime in, what, 1969, 1970? Dad's at work, my sister's at school. Mom wants to nap on the couch, and so I have to as well, but I'm wide awake. Coronation Street on the CBC. Guys, I could do this all week. Here's a question. In 20, 30 years from now, what will you remember if you hear this? Involuntary memory is what we call the recollection of past events without trying to do so. Memories are triggered by everyday occurrences or stimuli. Marcel Proust refers to it with In Search of Lost Time, small Madeleine cakes prompting him to remember the Sunday mornings of his childhood and his Aunt Leonie. It is, as opposed to voluntary memory, the conscious act of recall, what we term the flashback. I used to pride myself on having an exceptional memory, but have been humbled too many times over the years to make that boast. The memory is like a muscle that needs to be exercised, and spending as much time as I do learning lines for the theater at least keeps mine in decent shape. But the flip side to pride is hubris, and frankly it's embarrassing to be so certain about who starred in some old TV show or the B-side to a record only to be proven wrong. Do that on a quiz show or completely go up on your lines in front of 200 people and it's mortifying. And then there's the notion that memory, despite there being such a thing as collective memory, is in actuality an individual, personal thing. 
If you and I experience the same fender bender while seated next to one another, chances are I'll remember what song was playing on the radio, and you'll recall that the SUV that backed into us was green. So memory gets particularly interesting when, say, we take a place I am very familiar with, my hometown of Saint-Jean-sur-Richelieu, and toss in a couple of other factors, such as time and, let's call it, celebrity. Because it was at this time of year, in 1842, that the writer Charles Dickens visited my town. Charles Dickens, the man who wrote Great Expectations, A Christmas Carol, David Copperfield, A Tale of Two Cities, Oliver Twist, spent time in my little town, my mostly French-speaking, separatist-leaning hometown. The only thing that would have surprised me more was if Shakespeare himself had sailed down the Richelieu. Charles Dickens had come over with his wife Catherine on the advice of writer Washington Irving and spent a month in New York trying to rustle up support for an international copyright law that would put an end to the pirating of his works by American publishers. Despite Irving and two dozen other writers signing a petition to present to Congress, the press was hostile to the idea and suggested Dickens shut up and enjoy his popularity. This actually reminds me of the current state of the music industry in our post-Napster world. But back to Dickens. He was indeed treated like a celebrity in the New World and was at first quite charmed by the United States, finding the people friendly and frank, but over the weeks and months started to see in them a vulgarity and boorishness, whether in Washington or New York. His petitioning for intellectual copyright law and his criticism of the institution of slavery were not taken well. They eventually retreated to the British side of the border, crossing over at Niagara, and were able to spend ten days relaxing near the falls, finding the Canadian citizenry less pushy, more polite, and perhaps literally more British. The Dickenses traveled east from Toronto to Kingston, and then on to Lachine, which is now part of Montreal, via steamboat and carriage. They went as far as Quebec City, seeing the old town behind the fortifications and the Plains of Abraham, where the British had won North America from the French in the previous century. I wonder if a visiting Frenchman would have taken so sanguine a view of the place as did Dickens. It was on the return trip to New York, from where they would depart for home, that they saw my stomping grounds. On May 30th, they took a steamboat from Montreal to La Prairie, and then boarded the train to St. John's as they knew it. When my dad moved our family to Saint-Jean in 1975, one of the first things I remember was a stone monument in the old downtown where he'd grown up, commemorating the first railway in Canada, established in 1836. The Champlain and St. Lawrence Railway ran between St. John's and La Prairie, a distance of about 14 miles. But for all that, I don't think they stayed more than a night, and doubt they saw much of the town itself. There were far more English-speaking folks there in 1842 than there are now, but how many of them would have cared that the author of the Pickwick Papers was passing through? It's a pretty sure bet and understandable that the French speakers wouldn't have. No gala reception here, and today there's no Parc Charles Dickens or Boulevard Charles Dickens to signify the event. According to the man himself, 
Our last greeting in Canada was from the English officers in the pleasant barracks at that place, a class of gentlemen who had made every hour of our visit memorable by their hospitality and friendship, and with rule Britannia sounding in our ears, soon left it far behind. Well, no wonder. He hung out with fellow Brits at what I grew up knowing as the CMR, the Collège Militaire Royal. Not even downtown, but further along the river in the direction of Lake Champlain and yet another steamboat south to New York. It can't blame them, really. With the punishing modes of travel and the time it took to get anywhere, not to mention the soured relationship he had with our American friends, it sounds like he could have used a more soothing night in with some friendly people. So my memories of that place and his probably never did intersect, though it tickles me to imagine him on the banks of the Chambly Canal, less than a year away from opening at that point, maybe inspecting the construction of the locks, gazing upon the same shores I knew as a kid, Saint-Jean to the west, Iberville to the east, and perhaps in dire need of a drink. That's the hometown I remember. Pretty much, episode 17. Two things. Maybe more. I forget. Written and read by Scott Clarkson. Music by The Icicle Works, David Bowie, and Garner Firebird.